We are talking, we've been walking through this gospel uh, message that Paul calls uh, a letter to the the church in Rome, and uh, we're calling this Romans, the, the power of the gospel. We're just walking through, verse by verse, through the book of Romans, and we'll be here for some time. Uh, we're going to be at the end of chapter two today. Uh, we're calling this the difference between churchianity and, and Christianity, and we'll unpack uh, what that means here in, in just a minute. Uh, there is a sermon outline in your bulletin. Uh, feel free to follow along. Now, let's say that you have a bad heart. Now, I'm talking physically, okay? Physically, you have a a bad heart. There's nothing that can be done to to make this heart better. You actually need a new heart. You need a heart transplant. So, you decide to go to the greatest hospital the world has ever seen. I'm talking about Central Peninsula Hospital. Man. Now, you step foot into that hospital, and do you say, I'm well. I made it. I did it. I'm inside the hospital, and now I've got a good heart. No, that's a good step. It's an important first step, but going into the hospital doesn't give you a good heart. Now let's say, okay, well then I'm going to take it a step further, and I'm going to read all the books there are on heart transplants, right? I'm going to read them all. I'm going to memorize key passages of those books. Reading all of those books, does that give you a new heart? It doesn't. What if you said, man, I am going to go to all the heart meetings there are out there. I don't even know if that's a thing. But I'm going to go to a heart meeting, and I'm going to, I'm going to listen to all the greatest surgeons and heart professionals across the world and, and attend every week. I will faithfully attend these meetings about hearts. Now, you can go week after week. Does that give you a new heart? Even if you said, I have parents who have amazing hearts. And, and actually, both my parents are heart surgeons themselves. No matter what your heart lineage is, that doesn't give you a good new heart. And I was thinking about it this week, and, and this, is not a tough, this is not an easy sentence to say, but I want to say it because I believe it. The most difficult person to bring to Christ is the religious person the most difficult person to convince that they need a new heart is the person that's already in the hospital. The person who already attends all the meetings. The person who who reads the book. The person who has has parents that come from the right line. And and there are many who say, man, I know. My my mom and dad are Christians, right? My dad was, was a deacon. He was, he was the elder board chairman. My mom was a Sunday school teacher, right? And you might say, I I got all the Bibles a person could ever ask for. I don't even need those little tabs that tell you where the books are, right? Took those training wheels off years ago. Nahum, Habakkuk, not a problem. (laughs) And and you might say, man, I've been to church every week since I was in the nursery. I missed one Sunday because of an emergency appendectomy, but I still caught the Sunday evening at the Bible chapel, right? Like, I'm good to go. And my fear is, my fear is there are many in this room today who who think that they're saved when in reality they're lost. And and we're not playing games here. So I've got to cut through that. We just got to be real with each other today. The the, the reality is, is, is just because you're in a hospital doesn't mean you're healthy. Just because you take your car into the garage doesn't mean it's actually getting fixed. And just because you're sitting in a church 
even if you attend it regularly, and even if your parents were Jesus followers, and even if, if you read your Bible, and you tithe, and you take part in communion, that doesn't mean that, that, doesn't mean that you're a Christian. That doesn't mean that you've had a heart transplant. That doesn't assure that you're following Jesus. That doesn't mean you've passed from death to life. That doesn't mean you're growing. Those are good steps. Those are all good things, but that's not salvation. And this morning, Paul wants to lovingly warn us about the false security of what I would call churchianity. You remember Paul's theme as he writes this letter to the the churches in Rome. And he said, I want to tell you what the power of the gospel is. And and verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 is his thesis. He goes, this is what the rest of the book is about. And he says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of this gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile alike. He goes, the way to be saved, the way to a heart transplant is through the gospel itself. Why the gospel and not anything else? He says, for in it, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. How do we live? How do we get a new heart, a new life, an actual hope? He says it's through the gospel. There's a lot of words there we may not understand completely. We're going to unpack that as we go through the book of Romans. But where he's started with us in this book is our need for this gospel. That we are wrong and we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. And so as we look through the outline, Paul starts with sin, right? He starts by showing us our badness to see our need for God's rightness. Because there is nothing right, nothing good, nothing clean inside of my sinful heart. And so he starts talking about sin. And we said the way he does this is he kind of takes us into this universal courtroom where every human being is on trial before God. And we said in this courtroom, what he's showing is everyone's condemned. Everyone is worthy of nothing but God's wrath because of their sin. And he started with this person we called the heathen in chapter one. And we said the witness on the stand was creation, that they knew about God through creation, but he says mankind rejected God. They didn't thank him as creator. And instead they chose open rebellion and sin. And then we looked at the second guy last week, the moralist. And and he's the guy who looks at the heathen. This is Mr. Nice Guy. And he says, God, you're right. The heathen does deserve hell. They rightly deserve your wrath. And God says, you're right. And, and you who judge the other person, you actually do the exact same things that they do. And you are just as deserving of, of my wrath as, as they are. And he called this the witness stand the conscience. He says nobody lives up to their own standard of right and wrong. Their own con- nobody fully obeys their own conscience, let alone God's perfect standard. He says the moralist is rightly condemned too. And today we're going to see the Jew going, Amen and Hallelujah! Moralist, heathen, rightly condemned before God. But, Paul, we're good, right? Like, you're a Jew. We're Jews. God likes us, right? We're his favorites. And they're going to make three declarations today. But, Paul, we have the law. We're good to go. We have the law. Paul, we are circumcised. And, Paul, we are Abraham's kids. We are Jewish people. We, we don't get the same wrath as the rest of this heathen Gentile world, right? Now, each of these things has a basis of truth. And so what Paul's going to do is carefully work through each one and show us at the end that the Jew is just as condemned as the heathen and as the moralist, and they need Jesus just as desperately. 
His point is there's nothing right in you. You need God to give you right standing if you're ever going to be acceptable in his sight. Now, a word of caution here. Because it might be easy this morning to go, finally, he's ripping on somebody else, right? Like, we can step back and just let God undress the Jew. Like, we do not have to worry about him pointing the finger at us. But when we read God's word, we're not just reading God's word. We have to allow it to read us. And what we got to see today is our own tendency to rely on religious performance and status to be acceptable before God. We do that just as much today in America in 2018 as they did as Jews in first century AD. Let's read this passage with open hearts and open minds and be willing to repent where we need to repent and believe and receive from Jesus where we need to believe and receive from Jesus. Can you do that with me? We'll start with number one. He says, the law cannot save the Jew. The law cannot save the Jew. Now, as many of you know, I'm a, I'm a substitute teacher on the side. Um, and last week, I substituted for the second grade classroom at K Beach Elementary. And did I earn my money? Oh, my goodness. Bachelor to the rapture, right? That's, come on. No, they, uh, they all have these class jobs in the second grade. I'm paper passer out, or I'm this and this this cute little ginger at the front of the, of the line, she was, we'll call her Susie, okay, Susie, the line leader. Now, Susie not only got to lead the class, but I entrusted to her my subnotes, and I gave her, it had the whole schedule of everything we were going to do that day, and it had a behavior chart, right, the whole behavior policy we have for the class. First time, your name goes up on the board. Second time, five minutes off of recess, and she knew all of it. She had it in her hands. Now, as you can imagine, these albeit little privileges tend to go to a child's head. And here comes Susie, strutting past the rest of these suckers, the back of the line, flipping her hair. I'm Susie. I've got the schedule. I've got the behavior chart. Behold, I am Susie, line leader. (laughs) She was feeling pretty good about herself. Now, a little while later, the empress of second grade herself, she gets caught talking during a period of independent learning, all right? Now, I go up, Susie, we told you the rules, put your name on the board. Susie, all right? She becomes indignant with me. But, but, but I'm Susie. I'm, I'm, I'm the line leader, Right? Well, you can't put my name on the board. And I said, exactly right, Susie. You you are the line leader. And you, more than anybody else, should know the behavior policy because you've got it in your hands. And, And Susie, you're the line leader. You need to be an example to the rest of the kids as we walk down the hallways. It's a no talking zone. Susie, you should know better than anybody. Now, Susie was not impressed with my little speech at all. So suffice to say, Susie and I had some quality time together at recess along the wall. Now, similarly, we we could call the Jewish people God's global line leaders, okay? That God, remember, he called Abraham, and he gave Abraham this promise. He said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you into this great nation, and I'm actually going to bless all the nations on earth through through your people. And so he gives them this law. It's kind of God's behavior chart right? This is what I expect of people, to be holy as I'm holy. And he gives them this schedule of events, not just for the day, but for the end of time, through the prophets. So they've been entrusted with the very words, he's going to say in chapter 3, the very oracles of God. 
And then he called them to be a light to the rest of the nations. He says, he says to the Jewish people, I want everyone else in this world to look at Israel and go, oh, that's how we worship God. That's how we live holy. That's how you, you are the people that you're supposed to be in light of a relationship with God. But if you've ever read your Bible, we know very clearly, suffice to say, the Jews spend a little bit more than five minutes on the recess wall, right? They do not obey God. They do not become the light to the nations that they've been called to be. Now, here in Romans 2, Paul turns to this imaginary Jew, and he imagines him objecting on the witness stand and saying, but wait a second, Paul, wait a second. And I love, I love when Paul gets sarcastic, and I think that's what's going on here. In chapter 2, verse 17, he goes, But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what's excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure, the word there is confident, you are so sure of yourself that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He goes, here's what you might be saying. We are God's people. We have his law. We know his will and who he is better than any of you other dirty Gentile nations. We are here to help you, you blind little ignorant children thumbing around in the dark. Behold, we are Israel, line leader. And what he says to them, and, and, and you'll notice Paul doesn't refute any of that. that that's true what, what they would be saying. But instead, he asks them a series of, of questions. And here, here's what he says, verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, and many translations actually put this as a question as well, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And what he does here, and I, and I love, Paul doesn't just go, you steal, you commit adultery. He asks them questions. Is this, is this true of you? And I think oftentimes, I mean, you can use this to get, really get people using their own brains. And, and, and oftentimes, I think a good question can be far more effective than a good answer. Because the reality is, if somebody's not asking questions, you can give them all the answers they want, but they're not hearing it. And so he uses these questions to cause them to examine their own hearts by the very law they're judging others by. And just like with the moralist, Paul is showing that these Jewish people are terribly inconsistent, that they too are, are hypocrites, right? He says, the very thing that your law tells you not to do, the very thing you're judging other people for doing, you don't do yourself. You remember last week, we said in verse 13, and I like the way the New Living says it, for merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. He goes, it's not having the law. It's not being a hearer of the law. It's actually doing the law that would make somebody right in God's sight. So you remember, he says, it's not having the behavior chart. It's actually obeying it. We said that Paul is showing how we need God's level of holiness to be right as he is right, if we're going to live with him, be in his presence. And he goes, having these rules, 
having these laws doesn't make you right. In fact, the fact that you have them and know better than any of the other nations what you're supposed to do actually makes it worse for you. Your, your light level is higher. You have the behavior chart and you're still sinning against God. I said, I can run around with the Ten Commandments in my pocket and still murder people or, or hate them, which Jesus said is the same thing in God's eyes. I'm still just as guilty. It's not the possession of the law. It's the actual doing of the law that would make someone right. And what a reminder. Listen, I can call myself super Christian, right? And, and I, can, I can say, man, I know God. And I know the Bible. I know right and wrong. And I've been put here on earth to line out all the bad people. But we've got to let the law take an MRI on our hearts as well. He says, that you judge your coworker for sleeping around for the, for the mess in their marriage. But let me ask you this question. What do you do on your smartphone when no one's looking? Do you lust in your heart? And you might flip through the clarion and, and scoff at the burglar and the bad guys. But let's look at your heart. Do you have envy in there? Do you have jealousy? Do, do you have greed? Are you perfectly loving other people as yourself? See, I'm not a follower of Jesus because I have a Bible in my pocket, because I have the YouVersion app on my phone. I even paid for some of these translations. I could sit in a church building once a week. But if I know God's standard and I don't keep it, I'm not an inch closer to holiness and having a new heart. And he says, to sum up this section, he goes, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, this is brilliant by Paul. He quotes Isaiah here, and he appeals to the same law, the same writings that they're boasting in. He says, these same words that you're boasting in, they actually condemn you, because you were supposed to be a light in a dark world. You were supposed to show the world the glory and beauty of God by how you lived, and instead, your actions. And we see this book after book in the Old Testament. You have drugged God's name through the mud. And the rest of the world looks at you and says, this is what the people of God look like? Who is this God? God's name is actually blasphemed because of who you are and what you've done. I mean, I think about this for us as Peninsula Grace. What does the community say about us when we leave this building and we go to the restaurant and how we interact with the waitress or waiter? And how we are in the grocery store and as we pick up our kids at school and how we are at work? Not what we claim we believe. What are we telling people about our God and the way we actually live? And so here's Paul's conclusion. He says, man, you better not take refuge in that law because you've broken that law. And the very thing you're depending on for your righteousness is the same thing that condemns you what we call an apostolic mic drop, right? And then he goes, now, now and he kind of anticipates their rebuttal, where he goes, okay, well, maybe we don't keep the law, but Paul, we still got circumcision, okay? We got that, and, and, and we're good with God because we've kept this, this covenant, and so he's going to show the second thing, man, circumcision cannot save the Jew. Now, can we just get this on the table? We're going to say the word circumcision a lot in this passage, all right? So if you just don't know much more about that, ask your parents at home, right? We'll just kind of deal with that. If you're an adult and you don't know, you can ask my parents, right? I'll just, they, they love to, I don't know. Um, <laughs> no. 
There was this old saying by the Jewish rabbis, and this could not be more far from the truth. It said that no circumcised man will be lost. That if you're circumcised, that, in other words, what they're saying, if you're circumcised, you'll be saved. In fact, there was this old kind of saying that Abraham himself was, was at the gates of Hades, and he was like this circumcision ninja. And anybody that would come that, that was circumcised, he made sure that they didn't go into hell. Like he was blocking out all those who say, no, if you're circumcised, you don't have to go to hell. You're good to go. That's a weird picture. And, and so what Paul's going to essentially say here is, no, 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 no. Go back to point number one. He's going to say, circumcision can't save the Jew because he's broken the law. Now, now watch what happens here. He's going to show two things. First of all, when circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And, and here's what he means by that. Verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if... Here's the conditional clause, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, it becomes of no value. If you're not obeying the law, it means nothing. So you think about this with other, with other symbols, because circum- circumcision was intended to be a sign of the people's covenant with God. He said, every male is going to be in my covenant people, the Jews, must be circumcised. And so it was an expression of of their obedience to God, an expression of their faith. But what did the people do? They disobeyed God's law. They still had sinful hearts, but they held on to this circumcision as some, like, ticket to God's covenant blessings and, and promises. At least they thought that's what it would accomplish. But you think about, think about a wedding ring, okay? What's a wedding ring? It's a symbol. That wedding ring does not make you a faithful spouse. That, that wedding ring does not make you be an attentive spouse t- all it is is it's a hunk of metal, right? If, if you're not faithful in, in your heart toward your spouse, the wedding ring means nothing. You think about baptism. We take baptism as a symbol, right? For a Jesus follower. And just like with, with, with circumcision, you said, man, you could, listen, you could get dunked in the Jordan River itself. But baptism has no magical powers to forgive us, to make us right in God's sight. The baptism is just, a, we, we call it an outward declaration of an inward transformation. And if there's no inward transformation, the outward declaration means nothing. It means nothing. And then he flips it around. He says there's a way in which uncircumcision can actually become circumcision. Look at verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So, so here, here's the point. Again, you think about your wedding ring. Let's say you lost your wedding ring. Does that mean you're no longer married? <laughs> Some of you guys are like, I, no. <laughs> does, it, does that mean that now you're going to be unfaithful to your spouse? No, of course not. You can still be married without the symbol. And just like with baptism, think about the thief on the cross. When he placed his faith in Jesus, Jesus turned to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. No, uh-oh, we better climb off this cross and find you some water really quick, right? The water, that's just, that's just a symbol. What mattered was the heart. And he says, if, a, if an uncircumcised Gentile, and they called them dirty, man, the Jews looked down on the Gentiles. And he goes, man, if, if an uncircumcised Gentile kept the law perfectly, they'd actually be righteous. God would regard that as circumcision and accept them. But as we know, that's no point for the Gentiles because there is no Gentile that can perfectly keep the law either. That we're all sinful. 
He says, if that, was, if that could happen, if a Gentile perfectly kept the law, he says in verse 27, he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. Actually, actually condemns the Jew. You who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. So if someone without the law kept the law, man, he'd really be showing you up who have the law and are not obeying God. But of course, all are sinful and no one's kept the law. So he says, okay, so, so the law can't save you. Circumcision can't save you. Now he anticipates, they go, yeah, but... I'm a child of Abraham, and as a child of Abraham, I fall under God's unconditional covenant blessings. Take that, Paul. I'm a Jew. And so he goes, okay, let's talk about that for a second. And he says, birth as well cannot save the Jew. Verse 28, for one, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and a circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So remember back in verse 17, he said, you call yourself a Jew, right? So you, you can call yourself a Jew. But to be a true Jew, and what he means here, to, to receive, I believe, to, to receive the covenant promises and blessings of God as an individual Jew, then here's what's got to happen. It's not just enough to have Jewish parents you actually must be a Jew inwardly, and that's a matter of the heart, not who were your parents, and not if you were circumcised or not. So think of it this way. I could call myself an eagle, right? It would be weird, but I could do that. And I could staple feathers to my chest. And I could imitate an eagle, right? Ah! Is that it? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I can't imitate an eagle, right? I could, go to, I could go to eagle meetings every week. I could, I could be kind of a part of an eagle book club. I don't know what eagles read, but I can read those things, right? But if I don't actually do what an eagle does, if I can't fly and molt and lay eggs, right? I am not an eagle. I'm just a very confused person. In Deuteronomy, Moses, he, he's, he's speaking to the people, and he goes, here's the deal. Here's the covenant blessings of God, but here's who they are available to and who they're not available to. And he's going to show us this is an issue of the heart, not just who's your daddy. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 30. Now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death. I'm not playing games. Here's the difference. Here's the dividing line between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love. <laughs> love, that's a hard issue. To love the Lord your God and to keep his commandments, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're about to enter and occupy. So if the promises were, man, you're going to get, you're going to have a big family, and you're going to live in the land, and you're going to prosper, and your crops are going to grow. He says, that will only happen to you if you love me and if you obey me. But if your heart, again, a heart issue, if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, where is worship? Worship is in the heart then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land. You are crossing the Jordan to occupy. So even for the Jew, he goes, it's not where your mom and dad Jews. It's, did you obey me? Did you love me? Did you worship me rightly? And Paul's going to show us clearly next week, there is none who have done this. There are none who have loved and worshipped and obeyed God the way that he's to be loved, obeyed, and worshipped. So now you go back and you read verses 28 and 29 again, 
and I wanted to look at the New Living Translation of it, and we're going to substitute a couple of words, okay? Uh, I'm going to put them in yellow, so you're going to see. I'm not rewriting scripture. I'm just applying this to us. Verse 28, for you are not a true Christian just because you were born of Christian parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of baptism. No, a true Christian is one whose heart is right with God. And true baptism is not merely obeying the letter of the law, it's a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. See, in no, in no way, hear me on this, no way is Paul saying that, 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 that circumcision didn't matter. He, he called them. Every male that was going to enter into God's covenant people needed to be circumcised. And in no way are we saying baptism is not important. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, and what's in the Great Commission? To be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So yes, baptism matters. But what he's saying here is without the inward change, that outward symbol doesn't mean a thing. In fact, it's blasphemy. It's hypocrisy. Because I'm saying outwardly I'm claiming something that inwardly has never happened. And I believe there are a lot of people who have been baptized, either as a baby or as an adult, and people who have been attending church for a long, long time, who call themselves Christians, but are not right with God. Because it's not outward. It's not baptism, just like it wasn't circumcision. And it's not sacrifice. In fact, God, he says in the Old Testament, man, your sacrifices are stenches in my nostrils. Because obedience is better than sacrifice. It's not tithing. Even if you tithe, you're gross and not your, your net, right? It's not communion, not church attendance that makes our hearts right. Only those who love God and love others and get a new heart. And then he's going to turn and, and, and man, they've really, they're back in a corner now, and so they're going to make some arguments. And for time's sake, we, we, we can't even get into this. Verses 1 through 8. Okay, or this, is, this is set aside. And then a reminder here, I'll take a commercial break to remind you um, that, man, pray that we are skimming the surface here together. I mean, there's only so much I can do in 35 minutes and a monologue. And if we really want to be feeding ourselves and feasting on the depth of God's word, we've got to be in this ourselves. And so we've been, we've been kind of presenting a reading plan. There's the, uh, every week we've got the passage for the coming week and, and other uh, references. We've got one of those in your bulletin right now. Uh, Jacob Peterson's, man, he's, it's been awesome as he's been helping us kind of sort through that and then putting those together. And so I encourage you to, to use those throughout the week to be in these passages and other passages in the Bible that cross-reference with those. Um, and those are also available on our website. You go to the sermon tab and, and the Romans reading plan. I'm not making any money off this. I'm just saying this because we need to be in the word. We need to feed ourselves as Jesus' disciples and know how to feed other people. That's what we're called to do. So in obedience, man, let's be, be in the word. But the way he's going to wrap it all up in verse 9 of chapter 3, remember he takes us into the courtroom and he's going to show, yes, the, the moralist is condemned, the heathen is condemned, but the Jew is just as condemned. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And we're going to see next week as he sums it up, there is no one who is good, there's no one who is righteous, there's none who seek for God, all are condemned. This is where I want to land the plane. I was reading this last week in Psalms. David wrote this psalm, Psalm 15, and he asked this question, who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? And this is the big question, right? The question we have to ask ourselves is, who can enter into the presence of God? And that's the only place there's going to be life. That's the only place there's going to be true joy and peace forever, is in the presence of God. So he says, who can go into the presence of God? 
And then he lists off the next four verses who it is that can ascend into the the presence. Because listen, when we're in the courtroom, there's not a jury of peers that we're going to be standing before. Did other people think we were good enough? I mean, one judge, and that's Jesus. And we get the thumbs up or we get the thumbs down. So look at who he gives the thumbs up to. Verse 2. Those who lead blameless lives. Is that anybody here? And who do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. Those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. He's talking about faithfulness there. Those who lend money without charging interest. He's talking about generosity there. And who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. He's talking about a clean conscience. He's talking about integrity there. Such people will stand firm. Now, notice he doesn't list off a bunch of externals. You go to church every Sunday, and you tithe, and you do communion, and you get baptized. No, no, he says it's got to be someone with the right heart. And you, you read this like Paul would read Romans 2. And you tell others not to gossip. Do you gossip? You tell others to be faithful. Are you faithful? Do, do I have integrity? Am I a generous person? Do I love what God loves and hate what God hates? That's the only person who can ascend this hill and enter into his presence. But here's the problem. There's no human who's ever done this. There's no human who has a right heart. And there's nothing we can do as sinners to make our heart right. There is no human being who's ever lived who can say, I followed verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, except for one. And his name was Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, he came to this earth, and he was fully God, and he was fully man, and he had a clean, right heart. You read verse 2, Jesus led a blameless life. Jesus did what was right every single time. Jesus spoke the truth from a sincere heart. Jesus never gossiped. Jesus never harmed a neighbor. Jesus never spoke evil of other people. Jesus despised the flagrant sin in a sinner. He always honored faithful followers of Jesus. And he kept his, and you you go to the cross. You want to talk about someone who kept their promise even when it hurt. Even when it killed him, he laid down his life to keep his promise that he made, to seek and save the lost. Those who lend money, Jesus was generous. He gave and never expected anything back from us because we couldn't give him anything. He could never be bribed to lie. Jesus had integrity. And even when he was, he was abandoned, even when he was, he was cheated on by his closest disciples, thrown under the bus, Jesus remained faithful. You see, the gospel... The gospel says that we are offered in Jesus what we could never be and never do on our own. That's the good news. The good news is that baptism and circumcision were just pictures, pictures of a reality that was to come. And here's the reality. I love Colossians 2. Paul takes circumcision and baptism and he shows the reality in Jesus. You look at the because what's the problem? We need a new heart. We need a new heart, just not, not external behaviors. I need a heart transplant. And look at what he says in Colossians 2. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised. But not a physical procedure. This is not, we're not talking fleshly here. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. This is what Jesus did. He took out that bad heart, that sinful nature, and he, and he nailed it to the cross. And then, not just got rid of our bad heart, but you were buried with Christ you were when you were baptized there's a spiritual baptism that happened there that the other baptism is just a picture of 
And with him, you were raised to new life. Why? Because you trusted the mighty power of God. Not because you attended church. Not because you were circumcised. Not because you were baptized. Not because you were tithing. Because you trusted what God said about who Jesus is. You trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that took our old heart and crucified it to the cross and gave us a new heart, the very heart of Jesus. This is our God. This is our Savior. So you ask yourself, have I been relying on externals, my ability or really inability to keep a law, my church attendance, who my parents are, how often I put in the offering plate? Or do I understand that I need a genuine heart transplant? And that Jesus, the one who went up a hill for us, is the only way in Jesus that we can ascend the holy hill and stand in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, who can ascend Who can walk into your presence, climb your holy hill? None of us on our own. We have all fallen short. We are all sinners. We've blasphemed your name, drug it through the mud because of our behavior, because of our wayward, adulterous, idolterous hearts. We do not deserve you. And Lord, we can't clean up. We can impress other people with with our external behaviors. But God, you know our heart and you know there's nothing good in us. But I pray, man, if there's anybody in here today has been relying on the wrong things for their salvation, that today would be a day of repentance to change their mind and stop relying on those things and start putting their trust in Jesus and find him as the only good thing and to grasp on to the beauty of what the gospel offers us that we could never gain for ourselves. May we be a people who fall on Jesus and that you would change us from the inside out and that this community would know the brothers and sisters of Peninsula Grace as real sinners, not perfect people, but but real sinners who are really relying on our real Savior. It's in your powerful, beautiful, self-sacrificing name that we pray. Amen.